I want to encourage you to open a Bible, if you have one in front of you, to the letter to the Ephesians, the second chapter. For a short while now, we've been working our way through this letter, taking it apart, phrase by phrase and sentence by sentence, understanding that what Paul wrote here was the distilled and concentrated articulation of the gospel that he labored to make known around the empire, suffering, traveling, journeying, preaching, in order that people would see what they'd never seen, in order that their lives would be gripped by it and changed by it. And he's writing here to a congregation he'd been involved in forming, but he's not been there for some years. And they're a mixture of some Jewish believers who'd come to believe in the Messiah Christ and those who had come from more pagan backgrounds, the worship of gods. Therefore, bringing in all of the kind of assumptions and ideas they brought to the table. And so what Paul wants to do is bring them back to the purity of the gospel that he believed and preached. And it's that that we've been focused upon in this section of Ephesians 2. And what is, in some ways, the most perfect short description, summary of the gospel that we as Christians believe. If you're not a Christian, I want to urge you to pay attention. I think that you'll understand things this evening, perhaps that will change the direction of your life, or at least give you the opportunity to wrestle seriously with Christ and his claims. My experience, though, as a Christian is that there are, it's impossible to exhaust the beauties the nuances and the importance of these ideas. I need the gospel afresh every day in new ways to remind me and to challenge me and to change me. And therefore, let's read. Ephesians 2, I'm going to read verse 1 to 10, and we'll focus on the last verses, verse 8, 9, and 10 this evening. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These last verses open up for us something of what, on the surface of things, looks like a contradiction that we need to wrestle with. On the one hand, Paul denies the importance of religious effort. He says it's not a result of works. 
On the other hand, he says that we were created for good works. So which is it? That's the question I want to open up with you this evening. Is God interested in our religious effort, our striving, our desire to obey him and to please him as a means of coming closer to him? Is God interested in these things or do they count for nothing? And this is the question I want to tease out. Now, just to lead up to it, I have to acknowledge to begin with, you need, let's acknowledge and understand and reckon that in every person on the planet there is a, there is a religious impulse. It's a longing for transcendence. It's a kind of awareness of a moral law outside of us and our inability to conform to it and the conscience that we have in our hearts that tells us we've not aligned to it. There's a spiritual resonance in every heart. And sometimes that comes to greater focus and clarity in individuals who directly engage with the pursuit of God and religious effort in that way. And very often it just lurks in the background as part of the the nagging sort of doubts and anxieties that live at the back of the human mind and perhaps are not engaged with in a very serious way. But you feel it still as a, a lack of meaning or a loss of, um, of, a, of a vague sense of loss or a desire to be clean. But I would say and argue that every human has that fundamental religious impulse within them, that, that longing to come home or to experience fulfillment or to be clean or to know the God who made you or to feel that you are known. And the Bible talks about that destination point of salvation. That sense of having arrived at what you were made for. Knowing God. Being clean. Sometimes it's depicted in kind of the, the way we think about religious effort as the ascending of the mountain. And that picture is, occurs in the Bible. Sometimes it's depicted as a journey, a pilgrimage with a destination point. What I'm trying to say to you is that the scriptures offer us such a journey and such an ascension, they call it salvation. But it's not just Christianity that teaches this, it's there in every heart, that awareness, that intuition that there is a place I need to be and a place I need to go and therefore I need to gather myself and, and pursue that. And this is why this irrepressible desire is expressed in all the religions and all the religious efforts that you see across the spectrum of humanity. Of course, there are individuals and there are whole peoples who try and suppress or repress that. But it's not a very successful endeavor, not for very long at least, because it's like trying to hold a float underwater which is designed to emerge and to bob up. By and large, humans have moved with that impulse and given birth to all kinds of teachings and pathways and there have been many gurus and many, many people who have taught various ways of seeking to arrive at where we need to arrive at. And sometimes, very often, it's driven the best of what we are, the best of human creativity and ingenuity, of art and architecture and desiring to live lives for the glory of the God or gods that you worship of humanitarian effort and compassion and community. At other times, it's led to the worst of what humans are, 
our most sectarian and bitter violence or our most judgmental moments or our most stratified societies. But all of it stems from this, this knowledge that there's a place we need to be and there's a route we need to take in order to get there. And the question I want to ask you, and which I think is at the heart of this, these verses, is what does God think when he sees this effort, this work, this striving? What does he want from you, is a personal way of asking the question. Perhaps we could ask it in this way. I've heard that it was said that the Buddha, one of the old, you know, the most ancient religions with the oldest writings, upon his deathbeds, his dying words were strive without ceasing. What would Christ say to the Buddha? One of the most recent religious gurus is Jordan Peterson. He's written 12 rules for life, and then he followed up with 12 more rules for life. So he's got 24 rules of this kind of pseudo-religious advice that's designed to bring you to that place. So we're talking about whether it's the oldest, oldest sort of teachings on earth, some of them, or the most recent new teachings on earth. They all seem to somehow align around these, these ideas. What would Christ say to them? What would the Apostle Paul say to them? What would he say to you? What does God require of you is the question. What, is, what do you contribute and this gets us to the heart of the passage, the contradiction that I explained to you right at the, at the beginning. And I want to try and unfold what I think Paul's saying under three headings. We speak about dead works, about God's work, and ultimately about the works of grace or grace works. Let's begin with this negative point then, dead works. The first thing you have to see that I think comes through most forcefully in Ephesians 2 is this idea that we are incapable in ourselves. So although the Bible affirms this hunger within us, this religious impulse within us, it says that it's in fact implanted in us by God. And we experience it particularly through two means. One is our engagement with the world that God's created, what the Bible um, sort of describes to us as a kind of natural revelation. We see the wonder of God's creation and our hearts resonate and say, God, the God who made all this must be awesome and I need to know him. And the other vehicle through which God speaks to us is in the internal part of your heart, through the conscience. The Holy Spirit is at work even in the lives of unbelievers to awaken and to keep alive something of the conscience that you're aware that there's a holy God out there and that you are not good enough for him. And through these two means, we're constantly troubled and we're, we're aware of our shortcomings and there is this religious impulse within us all. And as I said, many people suppress it or ignore it or try to walk away from it, others constantly are in a journey of searching. And the question is, what do you do? And do, your, do you, the things that you do matter? Can you do anything to assuage the problem or to arrive at the destination that you need to be at? And what is most clear, I think, in what Paul has to say here is he denies our abilities. It's there at the very start of this passage when he said that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That you, and he describes us being a slave to our flesh, slave to the demonic powers at work in the world, and a slave to the world itself. He says this is our natural situation without God. We're in this position of being dead. 
And now he adds a few more negatives. And when he begins to speak in verse 8 about those who have been saved, he says, by grace you've been saved. But he keeps adding these negatives. He says, it's not your own doing. He says, it's not a result of works. And he says, so that no one may boast. These three negatives. Let me briefly explain this to you before I just bring this point to a focus. He says, it's not your own doing. What he means here is he's describing the impossibility of even believing in Jesus and having faith unless it's by a gift of God. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is verse 8. And this, this believing itself is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And all of this is premised on this idea that you or I are naturally speaking spiritually dead creatures. That's how incapable we are. Not only are we unable to do anything to please God, we're unable to even exercise the faith necessary to be acceptable to God. So dead are we in our sin. He then says that it's not a result of works. So he's saying to those people who've come to know God, you you can say, I feel that I have been saved. I know God is Father. I feel forgiven. I know that my future is secure. And that ought to be where the the confident position that you're in if you're a Christian. He says, if that's you, then here's what you must understand. It's not a result of works. And what he means there is that you added nothing at all to your acceptability to God. You didn't put yourself in a posture of striving or obedience that suddenly you made yourself acceptable to him. You did nothing at all. You cannot be saved. You cannot know God. You cannot approach him by any sheer force of effort or obedience or conformity to his law. There is nothing you can do. And all the teachings of all the religions in all the world that tell you that you can, all of it is lies. Now, that strikes many people as being overly harsh. Generally speaking, we regard ourselves as being a mixture of good and evil. That those who engage seriously with spiritual things and seek to live moral lives, that they are suppressing the evil inside them and allowing the good to flourish, and that there is possibility of becoming good enough for God. But the Bible says, no, you're completely thoroughly tainted by your sin. There's no part of you that's acceptable, not even your acts of obedience. And that sounds altogether too harsh, doesn't it? The analogy I like to use here is to imagine that you are sat outside al fresco in St. Christopher's Place off Oxford Street, eating at one of the open-air restaurants there. And you order a beautiful bowl of soup. In this weather, it would be too hot. So it's got to be sort of a mild day, I suppose. You get nice hot soup. And one of London's sky rats, the pigeons, flies over. And in a moment of just sheer bad luck, deposits its excrement into your bowl of soup. Do you, at that point, look at the bowl and decide which part is contaminated? And decide to eat around the deposit inside your bowl of soup. No, you don't, because anyone with any sense understands immediately. This is liquid. The whole thing is contaminated. You, you discard the whole lot, don't you? 
And the Bible says that there is, this is how the pervasive nature of sin is so thorough that even our attempts to do good are tainted by it and therefore rendered unacceptable to God. And if anyone tells you, no, you can do good, the Bible says it's a lie. No one is good. No, not one, it says in Romans 3, quoting the Psalms. And he brings it to a focus of this third negative when he says that, so that no one may boast. You see, the problem, and it's sort of a paradox at the center of religious effort, is this. Either you're off the path and you're failing, or you're on the path and you're feeling great about yourself. You're feeling like you're killing it. You are doing what's right. And wherever you see people living in the logic of religious work as a way of attaining acceptance before God, if I improve my life, then I can know God, you discover lurking at the center of their existence a wretched, stinking pride. Jesus was so clear in all of his teaching at diagnosing and exposing the pride of the heart. I love his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. is a beautiful depiction of this in which he depicts two men praying side by side in the temple. He says this, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. In other words, a religious zealot, passionate to obey the law of God. And the other, a tax collector. In other words, a betrayer of God and of God's people and a wicked man. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But then Christ adds, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, everyone listening to this was scandalized because they understood the Pharisee is righteous and the tax collector is sinful. And Christ turns it upside down and says, no, the Pharisee is unacceptable to God and the tax collector. Here's what he says. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying there's a problem here. There's something of a paradox here. The harder you try to please and obey and fulfill God's will in your life as the means to get nearer to God, the more likely it is that you will feel great about yourself and you'll become proud and arrogant and stinking at the center of your wretched heart. Now, in all these sermons in which we've opened up this passage in Ephesians 2, it's felt like this is hard-hitting ideas. And you come to this one again, you say, well, look, isn't, isn't this bad news? Is it bad news or is it good news? Because it seems to mean that there's nothing we can do. We can just sit there helplessly and hopelessly because we can't get nearer to God by any effort or anything that we can accomplish or do with our lives. And in one sense, that's true. But listen, this is why the gospel is so powerful and liberating, because it moves in on all of the religiousness 
and the religious instincts within us and begins to lift off the burden, the, the, the crushing weight that's on our shoulders of that effort to attain some level of holiness that's just beyond us. And that constantly you feel chastised or accused because you're never there. Or you are there, you feel you're there, and you're judging everyone around you. And in either place, your heart's a mess. Because the logic of works, the logic of working to attain God's favor, rips you apart. Sometimes you live with the contradiction of both those feelings simultaneously. Feeling rubbish about yourself and feeling great about yourself at the same time. Such is the complexity of the human heart. And the gospel comes in and just takes the burden off us and says, look, it was never possible to begin with. These are dead works, the Bible says. You think they're good works, but they're dead because they're so tainted, so ugly, so mixed by the reality of indwelling sin and the mess that exists in our hearts. But if we left it there, yes, I agree with you, that would be bad news. But doesn't that indicate then that there's a better way? And therefore, having described dead works and the Bible's diagnosis of all religious effort, we now need to think about God's work. Because what Paul says here is predominantly the positive of what God accomplishes in us by his grace. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So while it's true that there's this negative element, you and I can contribute nothing to our standing and our position and our acceptability before God. The positive is God does it all. Which immediately levels all of us, doesn't it? Takes away all the stratifications and the judgment that can exist among people of faith. And puts us all in the position of grateful recipients, those who've received a gift we don't deserve. And the language here of grace and of gift are the key words here. And both of them really are synonyms because he's saying it's all about receiving something that you didn't earn. How do you experience this grace? I think the whole Bible is a story or a description of the grace of God moving towards undeserving people. Every story shows a new facet of God's grace, a new dimension, a new aspect of grace. And so we could talk about the grace of God indefinitely in all the nuanced experiences of life. But let me just give you a few examples, all of them true to my own experience and to Scripture and to the experience of any of you who know God. Grace is love when you hated God. It's being aware of his affection towards you when you were not interested in him. Grace is mercy when you were actively despising and doing the things that you know displease him. That's what he said earlier in this passage when he said, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. That's mercy. Grace is acceptance when you had no place being near to God. If you looked at yourself 
you would say, I don't belong here. It's the feeling or the emotion or the sensation that you experience in a small part when you show up on a special occasion, a wedding or a celebration, inappropriately dressed. You know that experience when you just somehow missed the dress code and you feel like all eyes on you. Because you're in your red velvet suit and everyone else is in black tails or whatever it is. Except much worse. Except taken to an extreme. You look at yourself and you think, I don't belong here. But grace is acceptance where God says, ah, but I want you. Grace is commitment from God. When you know that your heart is fickle. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're out, sometimes you're in. And I know it's depressingly true of myself that I, some days I feel much love for the Lord and other days I feel the coolness of spiritual drought and it's, I don't know why. But grace is the unrelenting affection and commitment of God towards me that he never changes. Grace is spiritual food. When you've been busy filling your stomach with all the rubbish that the world offers, you've been trying to find satisfaction in sexual fulfillment, or by attaining more things, or by competing and outdoing others by performance or ambition or whatever else it is, and discovering that none of that really satisfies your appetites and graces, God saying, well, come and try a morsel from my table, rather than saying, well, you've already eaten, so tough. Grace is a satisfying drink when you've been proudly wandering off into a desert place, neglecting God, wandering away from him, not seeking fellowship with him. And yet he still says, have a drink of water, my child. Grace is the canceled record of debt when you were utterly bankrupt and unable to pay even a penny of what you owed him. And he took it all off you, the debt that you owed, and placed it upon his son on the cross. And grace is his unbreakable grip. You ever try and pick up an unwilling child? Children have a wonderful ability of either fighting and squirming and resisting, or sometimes making themselves really heavy so that they drop through your hands. And grace is... When you're that child, it's God's unwillingness to let you go. It's his taking hold of you with his firm fatherly grip and saying, you're mine, child. You're not going anywhere. And you ask, what do you or I add to this? We just add our mess and our filth and our rebellion. And God supplies everything. He supplies the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, the righteousness and the status that you are now a righteous child of God because Christ purchased it for you by his death upon the cross. The life that comes through his resurrection. And he's like, what did you add to any of this? What did you add to the perfect record of Jesus in his perfect life of fulfilling God's will through his 33 years on earth? What did you add? What did you do to take away the burden of sin from Christ when he was hanging upon the cross? Didn't you only add to the burden? What did you do to breathe life into his cold body in the tomb and bring, bring that miracle of resurrection to him? What did we contribute to any of this? And the answer is nothing, nada, zip, nothing at all. And that's the verdict. So when Paul asked the question, well, how then are you saved? 
He keeps having to say, well, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. Or what is it then? He just says, well, it's just faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. By trusting in the finished, completed, total work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you to completely wipe away your sin and to give you immortal life. Faith is an admission. It's an admission that you have tried and failed, that you're incapable, that you're inadequate. And it's therefore putting trust into the abilities of someone else, and in this case, Jesus Christ himself. That's what Christian salvation means. And this is why I'm talking about God's work and not your dead works. This is something you have to understand if you're not a Christian wanting to know what it means to know God. Because you will naturally, and it is human nature, imagine that it just is a process of self-improvement. And the scriptures come and say, no, that's an unattainable goal. You'll never get there, friend. Give up now and trust in Jesus. Admit your failure And the love of God will surround you. And I want to urge you, if that's you, being a Christian is as simple as that. What a relief that is. You thought you had to accomplish this, that, and the other thing. And the Bible says, no, you don't. It's already been done for you. Jesus accomplished it for you. Now just trust in him. And you can know the Father today. I feel, though, as a believer and one who's been walking with God for as long as I can recall, I can never approach these truths too often. Because too quickly I fall back into the same patterns of legalism and imagining that it's my performance that matters. And therefore, being victim to those oscillating changes of either feeling the depths of my depravity and frustration with myself or, or the wonder of feeling like I'm killing it, you know. I'm really killing it today. And then the gospel cuts across all of that, completely smashes across it all and says, no, it's never about you, it's about Jesus. Brother, sister, are you in the depths of despair? Are you floating high, judging others, feeling superior about yourself? Wherever you're at, it's not about you, friend. Your works are dead works. It's about Christ and what he accomplished for you, his finished work on the cross. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now this brings us to the last thing, because I think Paul instantly anticipates where our minds would go. The question that we'll then have is, well, does our work, our behavior, our obedience, does it matter at all then? And it's possible you ask that question from a position of wanting a get out. I know I'm saved. I've cashed the check. Now I can do whatever I want. And in which case, the Bible says, you, you've never met God, friend. It's impossible. You can't think that way. But perhaps... Others of us, I think, would ask this question thinking, well, I don't see the purpose, the meaning, the significance in living a life of obedience to God if it's all about what Christ accomplished on the cross for me. 
What motive then for me to want to obey, to conform, to repent, to live a life for God? And Paul instantly anticipates that question and begins to speak about what I've described as grace works. We talked about dead works, God's work, and now grace works. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. He immediately begins to speak and to charge us with the importance that now you are a believer, your life is all about doing the will of God. And he encourages us in three different ways to see this and to live this out. And here's the first. He says, you're now a new creature. Here's how he expresses it in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. In other words, to be a Christian is to have been created twice. Once by the supernatural work of God in your mother's womb to form you into the person that you are. But then a second time when God came in and saved you and then began to tinker and to transform and to replace and renew and regenerate you from the inside out. We are his workmanship. You've been created twice. You've been born twice. And the significance of this is that to be a Christian is not just to be saved as in to gain entry into the family of God and to know eternal security. To be a Christian is also to experience, almost passively at first, though it does require the cooperation of your will, the transforming work of God in your life as an ongoing project from the moment you've come to know Jesus to your dying days. And the significance of this is this, that Christian obedience, therefore, is it, in some senses, just the expression of what you have now become? You know how it is that there are certain things about you that are innate. The way you laugh, perhaps, your sense of humor, or your work ethic, or um, your, you know, your interest. Some of this is just built into you, and it finds expression as you grow older. Perhaps it's more obvious still in the animal kingdom when you think about the instincts of creatures. How if you play with a young kitten, that thing is learning how to hunt and to kill from the minute it can start running around. And that's not something that it has to learn by an intellectual process. It's built in. It's an instinct. Or a duckling, apparently, will latch on to the first creature it sees when it's hatched from the egg and regard that as its mother and follow very faithfully until it's grown up. These are instincts. And there's a sense in which a Christian's obedience is an instinct because you're God's workmanship. He has begun to change you from the inside out. And the longing, the desire, the will, and the ability to obey are merely expressions of what God is making you. And if there is no such longing to obey, you're not a Christian. There's yet to be that work of God in your life. He says you're a new kind of creature. Another thing he says is that you now have a new destiny and purpose. Now that you've been put in the family of God, understand this, brother or sister. God has a will for your life. A very specific will and desire. Things that he wants you to do, to be, and to accomplish with the time that he has given you here on earth. And this is what he says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for Good works. 
Now, I find that profoundly encouraging because I think there is nothing more depressing and futile than the imagination that our lives on earth count for nothing and are meaningless in that sense, a purposeless, pointless, an empty existence. And I think if you have no God and no belief and no hope for the future, then really that is the verdict. But the Christian is saved in order to work. And by the way, it's in that order. We've already made clear you don't work in order to be saved. That's impossible. But you are saved in order to be put to work in the obedience of walking in the direction and the purposes that God has for you, friend. Some of that comes down to just the ordinary acts of obedience, of conformity to God's will as it's revealed in God's word. Some of it occurs in the circumstances and the opportunities of life, what it means to be a good neighbor, for example, when you see a moment of need or a moment where you can move in and help. And some of it has to do with the way God has structured and constructed you and his will for your life, the direction of the destiny, you might say, what he's put you on earth to accomplish. And when you take all of that together, I think that's what Paul means when he says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The sovereign God knows what he's doing, putting you where you are to do the things that he wants you to do. And that gives amazing dignity and purpose to our lives. You were saved to work. You were saved to serve. You were saved in order to do something. And what must you do? Well, you must keep offering yourself to the Lord every day and every moment even of every day with the confidence that God is with you. And this confidence comes in in the last phrase that Paul says here. He he describes these good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words... God has ordained a pathway for each one of his children. Even from eternity past, even from before you existed, God had a pathway, a destiny in mind for you to accomplish. And that gives you an extraordinary deep sense of assurance. I know that as long as I keep moving forward in willingness and obedience and desire to fulfill God's will, I am right at the center of his will. I am doing what I was made to do. And now, friend, as a child of God, the Lord summons you to this invitation. Come and work with me and for me. Not as a means of gaining my approval for your life. You already have it. I already love you. But as an expression of what I have made you to be and to accomplish with the time I've given you on earth. That's what God says. And the Christian's heart, the heart of the Christian says, yes. Every day. You offer yourself afresh. Say, God, I'm here to fulfill your will. Sometimes it's in the little ordinary moments of the day of faithfully walking in prayer, committed prayer life and studying the word of God and serving your family and being kind to your co-workers. Sometimes it's in the great decisions of life. Carefully thinking about marrying a person who will come alongside you in mission for God. Thinking about how you can serve him in the place in which he's called you and the work to which he's given you. 
Thinking about how you can steward all of your resources for the glory of God and how you can accomplish something with the time that he's given you here on earth. But all I'm interested in, friends, I can't answer those questions around what and where and how and what it's going to look like for you. But what I am interested in, in affirming in you is this, that desire to say yes to God, that's the Holy Spirit. Say yes to him. You were called for this. You were, this is what you were created for. This is what you were saved for. And therefore, while we do not work in order to know God, now that we know God, we work. And not only do we approach this from an individual lens in which I say, I am here to obey you and to fulfill your will in my life. We also understand that the community of the church exists in order to help one another in this process. Here's what it says in Ephesians 10. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the great purposes and missions of the church of God and the reason why you must belong to a church community and be fully committed to it, gathering as often as you can with God's people, is that your life will stay on path and be encouraged and that you'll be able to encourage others in the great purpose of the mission that God has given you to accomplish on earth. What does God want of you? That was what we asked. You can do nothing to make yourself acceptable to him. God's done everything in Christ. So let me take that off of you. But the authority invested in me as a minister of the gospel, I usually say that at weddings, but let me take it off of you and let you experience the relief of saying, I know I'm accepted, I'm loved, God, Christ has done everything for me. That's grace. But let me then charge you and say, but you know you are saved for service. All of the privilege of being raised from the dead. You were dead in your sins. You were a slave. You had no will before. You were a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now that you've been given liberty, what are you going to do with it? Isn't that the exciting question at the heart of what it means to be a Christian? To be able to choose to serve him. And the privilege of doing so. What a salvation. What a gospel. What a beautiful thing it means to be God's child in his purposes.